see Leslie out there on the street somewhere. Please <clears throat> say thanks for sharing her song with us this morning. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, open your word this morning to hear from you. Um, I pray that um, uh, none of my idiosyncrasies would get in the way of you transmitting your message. I pray that you would find us ready to hear, Lord, and not just hear, but to respond to the truths packed into your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1895, a movie director, a film director named Alfred Clark, uh, did the first, um, what we would call, um, uh, stunt, if you will, or first, uh, what we might call today, um, virtual reality in a, in a film. Here's what was going on. They were doing a film about the Mary, Mary Queen of Scots. You know, Mary... Well, she gets executed. So they were coming to the execution scene, and what he did was they had all the actors approach, and Mary laid her head down on the chopping block, and then he, he cut. He said, cut. Uh, well, not her head off, but he said, cut. And um, everybody froze in place. All the actors froze in place. And then they brought out this dummy to uh, be Mary, Queen of Scots, and put her head on the chopping block. And then they reconvened the film. They started filming again. And the executioner's axe came down and the head came off. And everybody, oh, oh my gosh. And so when people saw the film for the first time, they were not quite sure whether Mary's actual actress's head got cut off or not. Because, of course, she never shows up in the movie again. Virtual reality. These days, uh, lots of movies are done with what they call CGI, computer-generated imagery. They can make some incredibly realistic-looking things. I was a fan of the Avengers series of movies, and we watched the Avengers Endgame. And the thing about it is, if you watch the little documentary features they sometimes have after these films, you realize almost all of that movie was CGI. Actors in front of green screens held up by pulleys and ropes and things being manipulated, pretending they were fighting whomever they were supposed to be fighting in a particular scene. And then they go in later and they put all the computer animated graphics in there to make it look real. My dear, brilliant wife and I saw the Planet of the Apes remake movie a few years back. And um, we're sitting through the movie and... And uh, all the action's going on. And of course, there's these monkeys all over the place. And, and, um, and, uh, and my, my brilliant wife was enamored with all these little monkeys. And so I just leaned in her over and I whispered in her ear. I said, sweetie, you know the monkeys aren't real, right? Well, I forever destroyed the rest of that movie for her. CGI, virtual reality. Things look really real, but they're not. And that's a trouble that we have, particularly in our day and time, it seems to me, when we have this mindset of fake news. And so sometimes we just don't know what to believe, what's real and what's not real. And my observation is, my personal observation is, that the more people say things that they know to be not true, fake news, when they say something that's actually true, people don't believe it, because the track record is Virtual reality. It's not real. It's made up stuff. So that's why it's really important that as we start a little cruise through the letter of 1 John, this little letter in the Bible, as we cruise through this, John is going to underscore something that's essential for believers in Jesus. He's going to help us deal with actual reality because he's going to introduce us to the real Jesus. And here's a thing that I think is important for us to get a hold of. 
Sometimes people think of the Christian faith as just pie in the sky by and by, or people with their head in their clouds who don't experience the reality of everyday life in this world. And that's just not true. But here's the thing for believers in Jesus. What we have is the opportunity to meet the real Jesus in the middle of real life. And this is the Jesus about whom the Apostle John speaks in this first of his letters, uh, chapter 1. And I'm, so I'm going to read to you this morning, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just four verses. If you're following along on the website, just go to the right of the picture. There's a Bible translation opportunity there. You can follow along. Of course, you can open up your own Bibles. I hope that you do that. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write, we write this to make our joy complete. Now, what's John doing here? He's going to great lengths to develop an idea and nail it down. And he builds a progressively, progressively stronger case in order for us to grab a hold of this truth that Jesus is real. He's not some phantom ghost thingy. He is real. He's not some computer animated graphic on a green screen. He is real. He says in verse 1 that we heard him. The power of the reality behind the spoken words of Jesus. And if you've never done this before, I want to encourage you to take some time to go through your New Testament, the four Gospels, and pay careful attention to the things that Jesus said. Things like um, underscoring the Sermon on the Mount and helping us to see the reality of the ways that we should interact with each other in the Beatitudes. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, as, as Jesus comes to the conclusion of that, what the disciples heard, what Matthew recorded, what the people around him that were in the audience heard of Jesus was authority. This was an important message transmitted clearly and they heard it. Hearing is really important. And it's really important when you're dealing with really important stuff. Um, for Valentine's Day, I went to Sweet Granada. And I bought a box of chocolates for my dear, lovely, brilliant wife. But the guy who was working at Sweet Granada, he was having trouble hearing me because we were both wearing our really fun masks. And so I had to speak loudly. I had to speak clearly so that he could hear me. And he said to me as we were going along, he said, the mask thing is even more problematic for me because I have a hearing difficulty anyway. So the hearing was super, super important because if you don't bring home the right candy for Valentine's Day, that can be trouble. <laughs> hearing was this first element of the reality that John underscores here about Jesus. Jesus spoke and he was heard over the course of his three-year ministry. In fact, the Apostle John in his gospel, he says that Jesus said and did so many things that if they were all written down just in the course of those three years, there wouldn't be enough books to hold the information. So they heard him, and they heard him clearly. But not only that, in verse 1, John says, we saw with our own eyes, literally seeing, 
No ghostly visions. We call them eyewitnesses. Did you see that? Yes, they did. That passage that uh, Pastor Laura read from us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, all right, you don't believe me. Listen, there was the original group of disciples. There was a larger group. There was then me. I heard one as abnormally, because uh, you remember that uh, the Apostle Paul had that experience on the road to Damascus with Jesus, this little extraordinary way that he saw Jesus. And then Paul says, listen, you don't believe me. You don't believe those people. There are hundreds of people. And at the time the Apostle Paul wrote that letter, they were all, many of them were still living. He said, you don't believe me. Go ask those people. We saw Jesus. And the disciples in particular, they saw him every day. Every day. So they heard him. They saw him. But, but even more than just seeing is this thing that's underscored in verse 1, where the NIV, the New International Version that, that uh, I read to you a minute ago, says they looked at him. In the King James Version, it says looked upon. In the New American Standard Bible, the word is translated beheld. This is a particular word in the original language of the New Testament. It's a word that means examine closely or inspect. This wasn't just some kind of casual observation that they weren't quite sure what they saw. Did you see that? I don't know. I'm not sure. Did you see that? I don't know. No, this was looking closely to see and experience this reality of the person of Jesus. For a time in my young life, I toyed with uh, joining the United States Army. And so I went to an Army ROTC summer camp experience between my sophomore and junior years of college to make up for the first two years of Army, Army ROTC. And um, so the thing about the Army, I think I've shared this before, they like to walk everywhere. Wasn't such a big fan of it at the time, particularly walking in dusty Kentucky roads with red clay when you've got 45 pounds worth of stuff on your back. Not the most pleasant experience. And so we had one of those marches. And when you come back from these marches, which is another fun part of the experience is that when you come back, everything's covered in red dust. You've got to clean it all up. And so you clean it all up because the very next morning, they're going to have an inspection and the drill sergeants are going to come in and have a very quiet, congenial conversation with you about the quality of your work as you're prepared for the inspection. Now, the thing about this is that back in that day, um, helmets were, there were, there were kind of two-layered things. There was the metal out exterior helmet, which was designed to help things bounce off your head in combat. And then there was an interior thing called a helmet liner, which had a little web padding thing in it that was designed to make it, theoretically, more easy to wear on the top of your head. So the helmet liner, as you might expect, fit right inside the helmet. Well, inspection morning comes. And the drill sergeant comes by my bunk where all my stuff is laid out. And he takes my helmet and he picks it up. And as he picked it up, I went to myself inside my head, personal conversation with just me. I said, oh, no. Because what he was going to do, which he didn't always do, but what he was going to do was he was going to take the helmet and the helmet liner and pull them apart and check the level of cleanliness inside. I had neglected to clean out the red clay dirt on top of my helmet liner, inside my helmet. The drill sergeant, pleasant fellow, took me aside, 
very gently encouraged me that next time I should perhaps do a better job. Inspection. This is the kind of close examination that these disciples experienced in the presence of Jesus. The disciples got out their Sherlock Holmes magnifying glasses and they checked Jesus out. So they, they heard him, they saw him, they, they did this close personal examination, they looked at him, and then in verse 1, it says not only all of that, but their hands touched him. The final test, physical contact. This is the Thomas test. You remember Thomas, right? The, the disciple who was not there at the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. And he comes in and all the other disciples are all ramped up and amped up because they've seen Jesus. And Thomas says what? Listen. Fine, boys. Listen. Fine for you. But unless I see him and put my hands in the wounds myself, I'm not going to believe it. So Jesus shows up. Special appearance just for Thomas. He says, Tom, come on over, boy. Come on over. Check it out. Really real. A hands-on experience with Jesus. In the middle of a hands-on culture. So, what do we draw? What conclusion can we draw from all of those layers of affirmation about the reality of Jesus that John's trying to unpack for us here. We can draw this conclusion. Jesus is real. He is not the product of some vague, wishful thinking on the part of people who sometimes get in trouble. He is, according to the Gospel of John chapter 1, he is the agent, active agent of the creation of the universe. And he is the one in whom we fully can rest And trust because he is real. For these disciples, they had some memorable experiences that had unmistakable and permanent impact in their lives. You and I, we have those kind of memorable experiences, right? I can still remember when I was stationed in Germany, the picture on the front page of the Stars and Stripes airport of the Challenger explosion in 1986. I can still see that picture. I can still remember turning on the television on on September 11th and watching those Twin Towers come down. I can see it today as clearly as I could see it then. And unfortunately, I can look back all the way back now to January 6th, 2021. And I can see people storming the U.S. Capitol. image permanently planted in my brain. Not just misty memories, but vivid, life-altering experiences. Now think about this. On a grander scale, for John and the other disciples, there's this unmistakable, permanent impact. Nothing in their lives would ever be the same again. Jesus was real, and he is real. Now, Pastor Laura and I agreed this morning that there was time for us to Confess an addiction that's been haunting our family for years. And um, we thought it was time, you know, we've known you long enough. We thought it was time to be transparent about this. And, and I have to share with you this morning that it, it breaks my heart to say this, but um, Pastor Laura is addicted to Diet Coke, Diet Coke. It's just painful to even say it. In fact, 
Diet Coke, I kind of call it uh, a disgusting cola instead of Diet Coke. But this addiction to Coca-Cola is, is tragic because it, it doesn't have, this Coke stuff doesn't have any of the purity of iced tea about it. Now, I don't know if you can remember this commercial. I'm sure if Steve Houghton was here this morning, he could remind us of it. But I don't know if you remember these series of commercials about Coca-Cola, where they always advertise themselves as the real thing. Now, think about this, just as an aside. Um, Diet, caffeine-free Coca-Cola. There's literally nothing in that bottle. Right? There's no taste, there's no, there's no sweetener, there's nothing in there, but it's the real thing. Well, I think John would have us here this morning that Coca-Cola needs to move on over. Because Jesus was and is the original real thing. John and these other disciples, they knew it, they said it, they lived it, they shared it. Many of them died for it. Jesus And if all of that is true, and it is, this makes it the most important true thing ever. Jesus is real. And because Jesus is real, John unfolds just for us in these few verses here, these first four verses, he unfolds for us a couple of realities. Because Jesus is real. The first reality in verse 3, we can have fellowship with each other through Christ. Now, in 21st century Christianity, when Christians hear the word fellowship, particularly in North America, we immediately think about food. That is not what John's talking about here. He's using a Bible word, of course, because it's, you know, in the Bible. The biblical word is the word koinonia. You maybe have heard this word before. Koinonia is um, what we have in common and what we actively share that we have in common. This is a picture of folks gathered around, not the coffee table with the delicious goodies that Marge Jennings used to make for us. This is not that picture. Unless that picture includes a deeper grappling with the reality of who Jesus is and the implications of that reality for us personally and for us as a church together. This is not just coffee conversations. This is fellowship around Jesus. This is fellowship around the real Thing, the only way, truth, and life. And because Jesus is real, and we know that he's real, we can go the extra mile to be there for other people when they need us to be there. Now, this story's a little long. I just want you to bear with me for a minute or two here. When uh, record cold temperatures, heavy snows, and power outages hit Texas a couple of weeks ago, many were stuck in their homes or stranded on the roads. For a woman named Chelsea Timmons, it meant spending six days living with strangers who took her in when her car became stuck in their driveway. Timmons wrote on Facebook that she had traveled to Austin, Texas to deliver groceries and make some extra money as everyone was trying to hunker down for the storm. She planned to leave the city around noon to drive the three-hour home way back home to to Houston, and she took her final delivery order from HEB, that's a huge grocery store chain in Texas, at 11 o'clock on Sunday, February 14th. Here's what she said. Road conditions were becoming poor, so it took me a little over an hour to pick up their order and arrive at their home, Timmons wrote. Their home sat lower than the main road, so their driveway was at an incline. I began my descent down the hill very cautiously. I crept down, remembering to tap my brakes and not slam them when in icy conditions. 
something, parenthetically, from me. By the way, most Texans just do not know how to do it. She said, I tapped, but the car continued at the same speed. I panicked and slammed my brakes, but my car continued forward down the driveway. As she realized she lost control of the car, Timmons wrote that she braced herself for impact and thought of every imaginable worst-case scenario, but luckily the car rolled into a flower bed and stopped against a tree. Luckily, I didn't have enough momentum to cause damage, Timmons wrote. I was safe, the car was undamaged, their property was safe, but that tree was a goner. Timmons wrote that she unloaded the couple's groceries and let them know what had happened. She was unable to turn her car around. But the icy driveway was too much. She was was able to turn the car around, but the icy driveway was too much for the vehicle to manage. And after, after several failed attempts to get up the slope, they decided to call a tow truck rather than risk damage to the car or to the home. However, since many other Texans were dealing with the same weather, AAA told her it would be an hour or two before a truck could arrive. The couple allowed her to wait inside, but more than six hours later, the tow truck still hadn't appeared. At about 6 p.m., AAA called and said my location was inaccessible due to weather conditions. Timmons wrote, I tried to get an Uber, Lyft, taxi just to get me to the hotel a few miles away so I could stay for the night. But obviously, if tow trucks weren't getting through, neither were cars. Conditions worsened and options dwindled, and eventually the couple offered their guest bedroom to me for the night. These people let a complete stranger, and she writes this three words, stranger in all caps, complete stranger, stay the night, she continued. Not only that, but they cooked me a steak dinner. Definitely not how I imagined my Valentine's Day, she said. As the weather conditions continued, so did Tim and stay. In the end, she stayed with the couple for six days. The couple, Nina Richardson and Doug Condon, said to the local NBC news station, at some point we realized that we were going to probably have a house guest for a few days, which was fine. Timmons said, every morning when I suggested leaving to a hotel, they would ask, can you make it there safely? What would you eat? What if they lose power? Isn't our guest room better than the Hampton Inn? Day after day after day, every morning they would say, no worries, stay a bit longer. Timmons said, I would go to my room and shed tears of joy. Do you see it? Can you feel it? The power of energized generosity in action. Now, I do not pretend to know as I stand here this morning what the spiritual condition is of this couple that welcomed this young woman into their home for six days and let her stay there until it was safe to go. Don't know. But think about it. If Jesus is really real, and we genuinely have fellowship gathered around his name where we share the reality of him, what we have in common, and common purpose, then shouldn't that kind of behavior be the norm that characterizes the Christian experience? Shouldn't we not be surprised to hear about some Christian being generous and sharing and caring and finding ways to be creative and invested in other people's lives? Shouldn't that be like the the usual thing? Shouldn't we not have to use the word unusual around Christians in action, energized, and activated by the reality of Jesus? And because Jesus is real, not only can we invest well in other people, but we can experience what the Bible calls joy. Now, you and I, we confuse joy with happiness all the time. Happiness, function of circumstance. Up or down, it all depends on what's going on, what's blowing through. When the weather's really cold and I go walking, I'm not very happy. 
When the weather's nice, like it's going to be this afternoon, and I go walking, I'm happy. It's all a function of circumstance. But that's not what joy is. That's not what Bible joy is. Joy, joy is understanding, living out, experiencing the purposes of God in our lives. That's joy. And here, uh, Eugene Peterson, in fact, he puts this a really interesting way when he translates the New Testament in, in his translation called The Message. He puts it this way. He says, your joy will double our joy. See what's happening? See how he described it? The observation of the joy being active in other Christians' lives doubles the joy that we experience when we see that and join in with it, completely independent of circumstances. We don't get this. Let me show you what this looks like. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, the Apostle Paul and one of his traveling buddies, Silas, have been thrown in jail for, yes, once more, talking about the gospel. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Another happy day in the life of a Christian. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, let me just parenthetically let you know that jailers were responsible at the cost, potential cost of forfeiting their own lives if they lost prisoners under their care. So they commanded the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Got this set up? Apostle Paul and Silas, they've been beat up for sharing the gospel. Now they're in jail, not just the outer part of the jail, but the inner part of the jail, and their feet have been fastened into stocks. But, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. No kidding. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Uh Uh-oh, for the jailer now. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. You get it? They'd been beaten up, tossed into jail, and they're having, you know, feet are anchored to the floor. Then they decide to start singing these hymns of praise to God. And then, you know, God decides where we're going to have a prison release day today and pops the locks all open. And they, all the prisoners, not just Paul and Silas, all the prisoners are free and able to go, but they didn't go. Paul says, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights. The jailer did and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you see joy? Completely independent of circumstances. Do you see how compelling joy, genuine joy is? Do you see how the jailer responded? To these two who were living a life characterized not by pleasantness of circumstances, but by joy. So, for you and for me, if Jesus is real, if he's really real, you know, we can cease being glorified grumps. 
And we can start being genuinely joyful. We can make a decision of our minds, and it's not too late. And frankly, I'm not buying into this notion that the older we get, it gives us permission to become grumpy people. No, 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 that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that an an encounter with the real Jesus in the middle of real life is the occasion for joy. This is not pretending that things are all hunky-dory when they're not. This is the realization that in the middle of whatever is going on, in Christ, we're holding on to the ultimate reality. And he may not see us out of the hard times, but he'll see us through them. Psalm 23, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. Joy. So, let me ask you three questions this morning. Jesus is real, but is he real to you? We, we should experience fellowship gathered around him. Do you? And we should have joy to you. Now, I've been, you know, bumbling along this Christian life for a little while now. And I've encountered the question along the way, you know, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Howard, but how do you know? How do you know? Let me tell you how I know. I know because of that cross back there. I know not because of that kind of cross and all prettied up, shiny cross, smoothed out cross. No, not that kind of cross. I know because of what that cross reminds me of, the cross that was really there in the life of Jesus when he decided to take up a cross and die on a cross for my sin and for your sin. How do I know? Because of the cross. How do I know? Not just because of the reality of Jesus' work on the cross, but because it didn't end there. I know because of those passages that Pastor Laura read for us this morning, that on the third day, Jesus was raised again from the dead. And that's why you and I, on a periodic basis, usually once a month, we pause to celebrate communion. We pause to remind ourselves 